With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. HN Podcast with Miller and Dace. And, well, Steve, many of the Big Ten schools are now practicing football on this 30th day of July as we record this podcast, including the Iowa Hawkeyes, who began their fall practices on Sunday, July the 30th. A week ago, Big Ten Media Days uh, kicked off the Big Ten kickoff luncheon and the format's really changed a lot since you and I did it, and and when you and I first started going to this back in the early to early two thousands, probably. Um, I mean, it was a real I don't want to say low budget affair, but that's probably safe to say compared to what it is now. I mean, I remember being down in the basement of I can't remember if it was the McCormick Center or one of the hotels down there on Lake Michigan. Might have been the Hyatt downtown Chicago. We're down in the basement level. There'd be like 15 or 20, well, probably 25 to 30 circular tables with about 10 chairs around them. Mm -hmm. And and every head coach and the player, and and each of the three players from each school had their own table. And media members could basically just walk around, sit down at a table, put their microphone down, and and be right at a table with the head coach. And I, I remember being somewhat in awe of that at that time. I mean, I was in my early 30s, and those sort of things still trip my trigger at that juncture. And I remember seeking out Joe Paterno. I mean, he was a living legend, and just sitting down at a table like two or three guys away, we're just sitting there like, like you feel like you're in a coffee shop. You're, yep. list, you're, you're listening in and you're involved in just amazing football story conversations and and doing that with all the coaches. I mean, and re- that was always my favorite time of the year to get Kirk because there after, you know, in my later years, I would just sit down at Kirk's table for the whole two hours, roll audio and type that up. And that was the best, most frank discussions we'd get all year. It's a different deal now. Coaches are at podiums for a certain amount of time. Uh, there's de- It's not as intimate. But you, you recall those days just hanging out with Barry Alvarez and him getting pissed off when people asked him Iowa questions. <laughs> yeah, I probably I think oh five was the last year I went and it had just been moved to uh that cavernous McCormick Center and I got to go several years I got to go to the Big Twelve and Big Ten um in the same year. When uh, particularly when the Big Twelve was would, would have theirs in Kansas City and these were always a lot of fun and you know, one of the things that used to boggle my mind is watching the Iowa media except for me, spend the entire day at Kirk Ferentz's table. And I remember I used to say to guys like Pat Hardy and Mark Morehouse and those guys, you can talk to Kirk Ferentz anytime you want. Why? I mean, they, why would you sit here at his table the entire time? Because you're right, I'd go hang out, you know, Paterno would bring cases of Perrier and just sit there and hold court with the media for hours. You can come right up and sit at his table, grab it. There'd be a waiting to a wait to get a spot at his table. And he would just sit there with a case of Perrier water, just down in it, you know, by the by the bushel load and just sit there and hold court. And I, I, would, I can never figure out why the Iowa media would just sit here at Ferentz's table when they had access to him year round. And I remember finally, I think it was Mark Morehouse said to me, he said, you know, the problem is if we walk away and he says something and we don't have that scoop. Ascent, you know, that's our 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 rear end is in a sling. When we get back home, so on the off chance someone may ask him something that may cause some news to break that we previously didn't know, we just sit here all day long, and so that's what they would do is just sit there and hold court, you know. And I took advantage of it. I used to uh, record interviews, and I did, when I first started going, I had no idea. My first year, I didn't know what the etiquette was. You know, so I did. I didn't know that these were essentially mini press conferences, and sports talk radio was still in its infancy in this part of the country in in in, in 1999, 2000, 2001. 
2002, we were just beginning to see the proliferation of local sports talk radio here in the Midwest. And so there were not a lot of radio guys there like me. From from from, I mean, there were national radio guys from ESPN, but there were not a lot of local or or sports fan radio, if you remember them. But there were there were not a lot of local radio guys that were doing what I was doing. And so, you know, I, I wasn't interested in getting press conference audio. I wanted to get five to eight minute, uh, you know, uh, clips of me interviewing these guys for the radio show. Yeah. So and, you were, you were bulldogging. And yeah, I, I I didn't realize the etiquette, but you know me, the way my persona works, I'm like, hey, if I got to fight for this, I don't mind, you know. And I would just sit around, and I would, and I, I mean, I would body block, and at that point, at that time in history, man, I was weighing close to four bills, so I would just body block other media guys until I got my questions in. That I'd walk away and go to the next table, and um, you know, one of the things I remember a lot is uh, the is going up to interview Lloyd Carr. When he was the Michigan coach, mm-hmm. and you know he had uh, he had a reputation for being surly with the media and some of those. I think the old ABC high, you know sideline reporter Quit Kessenich, I think he has nightmares about Lloyd Carr to this day, having to you know grab him for interviews and the way that he'd get treated sometimes out there on the field. And so I walk up to you know I'm waiting to, for my turn to interview Lloyd Carr. Wait until everybody asks a question, and typically with, and and what, and then with the with these ensuing years, I enjoyed the competition. Like I would, I would, I would enjoy finding competing with. Could I get the the one on one interview? You know, I like the competition. You know that. So, the first year I just didn't know the I didn't know the, the lay of the land, and then all the years after that I went. I just did it that way because I really liked seeing if I could get away with it. I liked the competition. That's so why I, I, the one year I tried it with Lloyd Carr, and. Couldn't, he was he was gracious to answer one question. I asked a follow up, and he was less gracious. I kept asking more questions, and he got he got really prickly with me. But I'm you know I'm not there as a Michigan fan. I'm there to get interviews for you know my Des Moines radio show. So I get my seven or eight minutes of audio, even though he keeps telling me last question. I just keep asking more until I get the questions I want answered. Then I walk away. Well, after the interviews are done and, and the media portion is done, they would have the luncheon and, and the coaches would come and hang out and let you get autographs and pictures and things of that nature. Well, I walked up to Coach Carr to get my picture taken because now I'm in fan mode. Okay? <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's just one after another when he's not even looking at people. He's just taking a, an assembly line of photos. And finally, he looks over at me as we're about to take the, my uncle's about to take the photo for me. He's like, wait a minute. Weren't you just interviewing me? He goes, weren't you just hogging the interview table about a half an hour ago? I said, yeah, that's me. I actually grew up in Michigan. I'm a huge Michigan fan. And his entire demeanor changed. He said, why didn't you just tell me that? I would have been a lot nicer to you. <laughs> and and you know, we, he, we just sat there and shot the breeze for 15 minutes. He told me about the entire team. And it was a hell of a lot better than what I got on tape, John. It was a lot better than what I got on tape. Yeah, exactly. You know? But uh, you were right about Barry Alvarez. Barry was a great guy, but uh, that but one year I brought my uncle, who's a huge Hawkeye fan, with me, and he remembered Barry as Hayden's old DC, and he walked up and oh man, the, it got frosty, the temperature changed, you know. And uh, I, I enjoyed those a lot. They were sort of the official kickoff to the season, the end of the long grueling summer. I'd collect so much audio that I'd kill like two weeks of audio or, of, of shows off. And the one thing, my favorite memory of one of these, though, did not occur at one of these events. My first year going to the Big 12s, I could not get Bob Stoops one-on-one. He was just too mobbed. Um, and it was coming into his second year. This was going to be the year they were end up winning the national championship. And um, he's like, call the office and, you know, I'll make sure you get a one-on-one later in the summer. And I couldn't make it happen, but Chuck Long was still on his staff. And um, he comes on to do the show on a Friday afternoon live. They were, they're just getting ready to start practice. And Chuck Long comes on on a Friday afternoon live. And uh, I mentioned to him, you know, hey, I appreciate you chipping in. Um, and you, you guys doing this for me. I couldn't get coach at Big 12 Media Days. Like, well, you know, Bobby's just over in the next meeting room. I'll just go get him. So he did. Just went across the hall. Grabbed Coach Stoops, brought him on the radio live. And I did a live interview with him right then for the next 15 or 20 minutes, you know, that was really cool. So, 
these were great opportunities to get to know these guys on at least a somewhat personable level. Right. And sometimes they would disappoint you. Sometimes they would not. But I always enjoyed covering these things a lot. I had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. If you're a junkie, they're great events. They they really are. They were. Uh, they are, I don't think they are that way anymore. Now I, I haven't been to one since probably. 2012 is the last Big Ten event that I went to, um, and they're just they're just different, and that's okay. Times are different, you know. Everybody's uh, big shots now, and that's that's just the way that it is. What about the SEC doing theirs for four days, though? Yeah, I mean four days. Yeah, really? sure. Yeah, but you know, here's why they do. It. I mean, they they dominate the news cycle for the because entire week. That, that's why, because they can. Yeah, for the entire week, they do it a week before everyone else. They have their grand stage. Four days, though, it puts a lot of strain and stress on budgets for news organizations that aren't exactly rolling in the dough. But it is what it is. They're the SEC, so they can. Um. Some takeaways. What what were some uh, some of the takeaways that you had from this year's Big Ten Media Days from your uh, couch television vantage point and all the articles you read? Well, I also took it, made sure I listened to every coach being interviewed. In addition to watching the pressers on the B, on BTN, I watched. Well, I'm glad one. I'm glad one of being, us did. Well, I, I I'm not going to sit here and lie. Like I watched every minute of Jeff Brom, okay, or every minute of. Um, of, you know, um, Lovey Smith. I'm not going to lie and pretend that I did because I did not. But I did listen to all of them being interviewed on Sirius XM's College Sports Nation from Chicago last week. I did get a chance to listen to all of those interviews on podcasts via their app while I'm working out. And between that and the press and, and what I saw, that the, the reason why the interviews are key is, is, the, is the show that was – that Sirius had Sirius XM had there, the co-host is Rick Neuheisel, the old Washington UCLA Colorado coach. And so because he's a former coach, he gets away with asking questions. Maybe right. guys like you and I may not, because right. he knows how to frame them in a way that a coach will answer without immediately being put on the defensive, because that's the way you and I would ask the question. Hey, why'd you suck last year? You know what I'm saying? Um, mm-hmm. If I could pick one positive and one negative the positive I would pick is I was very impressed with James Franklin because he's heading into something he's never faced as a head coach before. He's going to have a preseason top 10 team at Penn State. He's never had a preseason top 10 team in his career. Although you and I and those that are our age and or older are accustomed to an era of football where Penn State players dealt with these sorts of expectations on a perennial basis. Post Jerry Sandusky, this program has not done that. And you're going to go back to 2010, 2011, 2012, pre the Sandusky earthquake before Penn State had to deal with this on a perennial basis. And you know the, the guys that are this year's seniors, in 2012, they were what? Ninth grade? Mm-hmm. That was what five. That was what five years ago. So they were juniors in high school, seniors in high school. They've never faced anything like this. And I, I just the level of confidence I thought he exhibited, but not like he's you know Glenn Gary Glenn Ross in me. He's not selling me. It was just it was just I hate to sound like Jim Zob, but it was a quiet confidence. It was he's had a contented confidence. Like this is a guy that that has turned a corner. He's comfortable in his own skin. This is his program now. He has established himself. And for a team that has not is not going to have leaders that have faced these kinds of expectations, in some respects it's like a young football team, even though we know a lot of their names. It's because of the way they, they played last year winning the title. But because they've not faced this sort of a paradigm, it's a young team from an expectation standpoint. And whenever you have a young team, it's always key to get the cue from the coaches because they're the tone setters in that case. And I just was really impressed with the tone he was setting for his program. There, there was no sense of, well, you know, uh, we've got to earn it. No cliches, and he's been full of them in the past. He's fully embracing what they accomplished last year, and I think that's the right approach. Now, I don't think that wins you a single football game when we kick off here in four weeks 
but it doesn't lose you any games either. You know what I'm trying to say? I, mm-hmm. I think the coach comes in gripping or comes in with, I got to reload the cliche machine. That may, that might be the reason you lose a game or two early on. You know, I don't think these win you games, but I think they go a long way into you not losing games. You're supposed, you're supposed to win. So I was really impressed with the tone that he set and I think I won't pick for my negative PJ Fleck because I know you don't like him, and you know I do. I, I I'm worried though about the way he presented himself last weekend. Why? Or last How? week? Because if you want to set, he has no, do this it, do problem. it. Don't hold back. You're holding back I, something. I don't like that. I, I'm not holding back. I'm, I I, I want to make sure I say it the right way. That's all. Um. There's one program in the league where his shtick is co- is something they've seen before. Yes. Albeit, though, with a guy who doesn't have anything close to his resume. Nothing close. You're talking about a guy – I'm, I'm very familiar with the Western Michigan program. John, I grew up there, as you know, in Grand Rapids, which the Stones throw to Kalamazoo. It's like Iowa City to Cedar Rapids. I, I mean, I went to high school with tons of kids that either um, graduated before me and went to Western or graduated with me and went there. That is not a MAC program with a lot of tradition. It's not Toledo. Um, it's it's not um, Central Michigan. It's not even what you know Ohio University has been since you know Frank Solich came there. It, it's it's a it's a graveyard in the MAC. And you know his first year they go one and eleven, and in four years in one in one class he goes from one and eleven to playing in the Cotton Bowl. That's legit. That's not Tim Brewster. Tim Brewster is a nobody. Hanger on near to well. This guy's built a program. He knows how to coach. There is substance there. But I thought he laid it on for me. And, and, I, and I say this as somebody who's a, who's a fan. I thought he laid it on for me a little thick. Okay? The, the maroon and gold, you know, pimp suit. The bald cut. I've heard him use the line. And maybe it's unfair for me to point this out because I listen to so much, you know, podcasting for college sports year round now. But I've heard the line. I told the team they didn't choose me, but I chose them. I've heard that line at least 20 times now since he got the job in January. And I don't want to compare him to Brewster because he has a resume. Brewster does not never have when he got that job. But I do think he needs to be self-aware and mindful about that because of where he's at. Because while he may be the genuine, the genuine article, an approach similar to his has been tried at that school already and it didn't work. And they went to about the most – a guy that made Lloyd Carr look like Elvis Presley and Jerry Kill and that did work. And, it, and even though with all of his health, pro, health problems, it built a program that a guy is absolutely un, un, unimpressive as Tracy Clays, who rivals Danny Hope for least impressive Big Ten football coach of the modern era, okay, was able to win nine games with the program Jerry Kill built. I think he needs to be, I think PJ needs to be just maybe hit, pump the brakes a little bit, take a little mustard off the hot dog, Remember that he's dealing with a program that has already had a really charismatic guy who who, who didn't have his substance. But you know what I'm trying to say? He just needs to be a little bit more aware that the alum, the alumni, and everybody else there—they've heard some of this before. Okay. And and tone it down because of what. If he was at Northwestern, I wouldn't say this. He was at Iowa, Indiana, probably any other school in the Big Ten. I'd be like, dude, look at his resume; it speaks for itself. But he's at a school where a similar caricature. Tried, tried this, and it didn't work, and I just think he needs to be a little bit more mindful of that. I thought he, I thought he came off a little bit too much like the kid in the eighth grade who didn't want to shower after gym class, and he thought English leather was a worthy substitute, okay? All right. Now, you know I'm not – okay, P.J. Fleck, the dude, as far as the things he's gone through, his attitude, his positivity, um, I, I, I'm not talking about that. Those are separate things. I'm talking about PJ Fleck, the brand, PJ Fleck, the salesperson, PJ Fleck, the, the, the what you're talking about. I will say this. Now, your point is a good one, but, and this may surprise you, even though I'm worn out on PJ Fleck, hearing him talk in this elite stuff and this you know, spinal tap turned up to 11 that he's always on drives me freaking crazy. I am not his audience. His audience is a downtrodden fan base 
who has not been relevant in the sport on any level of consistency since the 1960s. So I'm 46 years old. I was born in 1971. Minnesota fans that are my age, they've known nothing but suck other than for a brief spell with Glenn Mason, and he got him the 10 wins once. They've been a joke, an afterthought, not relevant. P.J. Fleck, I think, is trying, and maybe too hard, he's trying to be their champion. He's also trying to get people to believe in something before you get there. And oftentimes, before or before you can even get to a destination, you have to visualize it. Now, I'm going to start sounding like Tony Robbins here, but I think that's what's I going on. I hear you. I hear you. I mean, I, I think the guy is... You know, the old Tony Robbins line, if you want to take the island, then you need to burn the boats. Because if you have a way out, human nature is you're going to take that way out. You're going to take that back door at some point in time when things get too hard. I think he's building this island. He doesn't care what people think of him. And he's getting these kids to believe in him and to hop aboard his attitude, his enthusiasm, and his, you know, look in the mirror and darn it, I'm I'm good too. I I know that's what he's doing. Of course, that's what he's doing. He, he, but I, he's I, a salesperson, and I'm a yeah, salesperson, yeah. and I get it. So I, I can admire what he's trying to do, even though it wears me the heck out. Your point about they've seen that before is a good one because. Tim Brewster is the first name I brought up right when he was hired, and you told me to back up the bus a little bit when I brought that up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I get it, but it's why he's doing it, and we'll see if it works or not. It's either going to work really well, or it's going to be a flameout. There will be no middle ground with P.J. Fleck. I I think think that that in the Harbaugh Harbaugh comparisons with him are impossible impossible to avoid avoid because because in many many respects, respects, Jim... Jim Jim, Jim I've, I've, some, some of this, this is Jim's personality. Some, some of this, I believe, is contrived because, because he was taking over a brand. Uh, he was, ta- he's, he's taking, taking over a brand, brand that, was that was the year before he arrived. Was was literally, literally giving, giving away, away tickets, tickets with a, with, with a Coke, Coke Zero, Zero purchase. purchase. Okay. okay. Um, and so you've got to visualize this idea of dominance before you can reach it. I get that. But. As someone, As someone who, who does, does like, like what he re- what he represents, represents as a human being, what him and his family's been through, the way he's, the way coached, he's coached his team, team the, the fact, fact that he that said, no, no, I'm not going to let Purdue chase, chase me away. away. I'm going to finish, finish this, this job, job with my players. players. And then and if then they want me after the bowl, great. If not, I guess I stay here. And Purdue moved on, and he got a better job in Minnesota doing the right thing. That's what I like about this guy. Is If you can create a caricature with charisma and have substance with it, too, that's when you really may, That's when you can really transform a culture. I think he's got that ability. My concern, though, is I thought, again, for a guy that likes him, I thought he came on a little bit too strong. And I think he's, I just, I would just urge him, remember where you're at. And and remember, they just got through winning eight or nine games the last three years in a row with guys who couldn't sell ice to Eskimos. Okay? And, or actually that saying goes the other way around, doesn't it? Uh, you, know, you know what I'm trying to say. These guys didn't light up a living room. So, my, here's my fear. My fear, My fear is, is if you come, come these guys, these guys this, this this group of Minnesota players, players he's taken over, over are used are to winning games. games. They're used they're to being competitive. competitive. So, so you can come you in with that, that sort of persona, persona come, on come on strong, like a like Rich Rod, Rod at Michigan. Michigan. And, the and the year before, before Rich Rod arrives, arrives. they win they nine games. Beat Heisman Trophy winner Tim Tebow in the Citrus Bowl. Comes in, first year they go three and nine. If you come in with that that dramatically different different personality personality, and they go four and eight or five and seven, seven, I think it makes it it much harder to win people. I think that's a good point. I think he'll start hearing the Tim Brewster comparisons in his own backyard, not from schmucks like us on a Hawkeye Nation podcast. And so I would just urge him, you know, I don't dial it. Don't dial it. Don't dial it up to 11. Just keep it at a 10. I thought he went way beyond. I thought the pimp suit, suit, everything, everything, I thought it was just just trying trying too hard. hard. Just coach your football football team. team. 
And you have, and you all, have all kinds of opportunities. That's the that's one the thing one Harbaugh, Harbaugh does, does do. Puts his Puts team his in the submarine. submarine. He, he, he is, is a hell of a hell football, football coach. coach. Just, Just coach, coach your team. team. If you do that, that then you then can you do all, all this other life, life coach stuff you want to do. But coach your team first. That's my only concern. Speaking of Harbaugh, and this, I mean, my my points aren't necessarily a football 101 this week because, frankly, it's it's press conferences, right? I mean, I sure, liked sure. your point on I, I liked your point on James Franklin. Dude's got to learn to walk in. He 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 seems like he's learned to walk in the skin that he's in. He's comfortable with his position. Totally agree with you there. This is a guy who's confident in where he's at and the program's uh, back. And and yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. But Jim Harbaugh. All the coaches sit down for their, their their team photo or their coach photo. All the coaches are decked out in their suits except for one guy. Um, it, it, and this doesn't matter. This, this does not matter. And frankly, he's Michigan's coach, and Michigan fans love him, dude. I mean, you're salivating thinking about it right now, waiting for your turn to talk about after I want him to say. The dude reminds me... Who's that one actor that you always talked about who was like a chameleon? Is it Daniel Day-Lewis? Yeah, it was like a human being pretending to be a human being. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. That's yeah. what I – Jim Harbaugh is a football coach pretending to be a football coach. And not just a football coach, pretending to be a specific football coach. Jim Harbaugh is like an actor – who six months before he goes and plays the role of Bo Schembechler is trying to be Bo Schembechler. He's dressing like Bo Schembechler, the way that Bo dressed on the sidelines. But I swear that's the only way that Jim Harbaugh is ever going to be seen in a photo op is with these frumpy khakis, the 1980s you know, navy blue and gold emblazoned Michigan sweater, the big M block M hat, and these Buddy Holly throwback glasses. Those are actually his Woody Hayes glasses. Whatever. The Woody Hayes glasses. And, and you know what? Woody or Buddy, I mean, it was the same era. So to me, he seems like he's just trying to be Bo. And it gets on my nerves. It un, it, it's off-putting to me sitting in my, you know, media room in Oklahoma, so who gives a rip? But it just it just seems like the dude's trying to play a character and I just don't like his shtick. That's just me. Okay. okay. It's not for everybody. I I get that. Okay. I mean it's one of those things to me it's just not it's not it, it's Tell me that I'm wrong on the tell me that I'm wrong on the bow thing. I don't think I don't there's think any question, question Bo was a huge influence on his life, and there's, he's never denied that. I mean, but dude wore khaki pants when he coached the 49ers, when he coached Stanford. That's kind of always been sort of his functional. He's, he's essentially wearing the exact same outfit he wore when he coached Stanford. It's just with Michigan now. Same sweatshirt. It was just it was a tree before, and it's block M now. Um, the, now, you do have – you'll notice that he wears the, the – the, the latest Michigan logo, but the hat is the old Michigan style of hat in the, in the 70s and 80s that Bo wore. That is true. Um, but it, it's, I mean, he's, there's no question that part of what he's done is pattern himself after a guy that was a huge influence both on his father and on him, was, and also going to be one of the greatest coaches the sport's ever seen, you know? So that's one of his endearing, one of his endearing qualities. To, to the fan base. I, I, but here's the thing. We don't really know what goes on at practice. Um, and it's, it's similar to Bill Belichick. I've, I have read numerous interviews with people who talk about how charismatic he is, how engaging he is. And yet every pre- – oh, yeah, we're going to play our best this Sunday. We'll watch a bunch of film and see how it goes. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. That's his shtick. Sitting out there in the hoodie with a frump. I mean, that's – and it works. It takes the pressure off his players, and it puts all of it on him. And I think that's a lot of what um, Jim has tried to do from the moment he took over at Michigan. Was I think he recognized that – first of all, I think his personality is a little quirky anyway. But, it, but I think he's also um, – 
clever as a fox. And I think he recognized that given the state of the Michigan program, his persona was going to was going to completely eclipse the program. And that could suffocate those players. If he's not careful. So since he didn't recruit those guys and you don't want to walk in and have your your star so overpower the program that they begin to resent you, uh, use it to your advantage. And and he created a, he, he created the character Michigan man. Yes, he did. And that and that took all of the pressure off of a Michigan culture that had averaged barely seven wins the decade prior to we arrived. I think they were like two games over 500 in the Big Ten to be to, up into the decade prior to when he arrived. You know, we haven't won a Big Ten title since 04, John. That is the second longest drought Michigan's had in the history of the program. So I, I think he's used now. We could it be argued at some point that that act wears thin too? Maybe. Keep in mind these aren't pros though. The players recycle every two, three, four years. You know, so or every three, four, five years, I should say. So every few years, just as a group of kids who are sick of hearing about it are leaving, another group of kids who are enthralled that their coach is on Sports Center every night and dominates on social media and gives cleats to the Pope, they come in. It, and so you can make a case his, his act actually is maybe better for college than the pros because the players recycle right at the stage that maybe they're starting to think, you know, oh, I, sure. I really don't want to put up with this anymore. Yeah, I'll say this, though. Joel Klatt, I think, is, a, is, a, is an excellent analyst on television. And he recently said, having gone to every major college team's practice the last few years, no coach and no staff does more and better teaching of the game and the fundamentals and the sport itself out on the field than Harbaugh and his staff does. So I, I think that if if the concern with P.J. Fleck is that he needs to tone it down a little bit because he still needs to coach a football team, I think that in the case of Harbaugh, his shtick for help is helps us to forget sometimes that this guy is a hell of a football coach. I think we forget that sometimes. And I think that the time will come eventually where, you know, if they don't win a Big Ten or national championship here and, and we get to year four and year five, you'll even start hearing Michigan fans say, hey, could we do a little bit less, you know, jet skiing viral videos and a little bit more recruiting? But we're not even close to that stage yet. Um, last Big Ten thing for me, FCS games um, – are no longer banned uh, in years that you play only four Big Ten home games and five Big Ten road games you will be allowed to schedule FCS teams I, I don't have a problem with that really well I'd like to see the Big Ten go to what the SEC does frankly and they're doing a, they're getting closer to that with conference games early in the year including Indiana and Ohio State on that first Thursday night and I love what the SEC does where they all play scrubs the second to last weekend of the season. So all the, all the other teams in these other leagues kill each other and kill each other off. And, and that helps to put all of their teams in a position so that one of them emerges from that rivalry weekend and that championship weekend as a clear playoff team. I, I think that would be a smart move for Big Ten teams to do that as well. The other thing that stood out to me, as impressed as I was with Franklin, is as concerned as I was with what I heard from Mark D'Antonio. I, I just, I heard, I, 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 and even in his, even in his interview on Sirius XM, just seemed like a guy that was much more interested in talking to AJ Hawk about his days as his, as his defensive coordinator, Ohio State. Just did not see and hear confidence, um, and and to some ex extent, you can imagine. He's probably, he's probably still shell-shocked shell by, by the way he's been blindsided in this program. But Maybe he's deflecting a little bit. And that, that's probably true, too. I, I didn't hear anything that made me think he has some magic. He, he, has, he has some answer to what went, what went down last year. And what I kind of got from him is I only know how to do this one way. It worked before, so we're going to kind of just re-rack it, and we'll see if it works again. Well, you know, this is the talking point that you and I have done this show how many times over the years, John. 
It is rare to build a program that is not used to being elite into elite status. Even more rare is when it takes a dip to put it back up there again. Few coaches have done that. We've got, what is it? What's our list? Bill Snyder, Barry Alvarez, Kirk Ferentz did it. Okay. Once they built it and it dipped, and then they built it back. Hayden almost did it. Okay. He had the, the dip in 89, and then they won the, the one that they shared the Big Ten in 90. Um, but, you know, then they were kind of. 95, 96, some good teams in the bust in 97. Yeah, but they were never really a factor in the Big Ten championship hunt again. You know, mm-hmm. I, 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 in fact, they had that game in '91 where they were where, they, where Michigan came in there and Iowa was defending was defending Big Ten champ, and Michigan routed them. And really, ever since that game, the rest of the Hayden area, they really weren't a factor in the Big Ten race. Kirk has built the program back up after it dipped. Alvarez did it. Bill Snyder's done it. But that's really hard to do. And you know, he's coming off the greatest one season collapse, arguably in Power Five history. The, the, the closest I can find to an eight game decline was Louisville, but that was 1962 when they were in the Missouri Valley Conference. So, I, just to, so whatever the polar opposite of the vibe James Franklin was given off, that was the vibe Mark D'Antonio was given off, brother. Yeah, and he's also got to try and rebuild it with three teams that are going to be ranked in the top fifteen. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. And all three, and all three hitting together there too. Yeah. yeah, all three hitting a respective stride. Yeah, um, no doubt. And, and just so people don't email me, I, Iowa was six and two in 1996 and finished a game back of Ohio State and Northwestern, who finished seven and one. But I, your point still is valid. Yeah, but Ohio State came in here with college game day, right? In '96, that yeah, might have been. Yeah, was that '96 in Orlando yeah. Pace, right? Right. Beat up, beat, beat Iowa up in that game, as I recall, didn't they? Yeah, I'm gonna look at the schedule and results here real quick. I don't yeah. remember the score of that game. It was um, 26-38. wasn't horrible, but maybe it was a. All right, I'm thinking of the other time, the, the most recent time game day was there for Ohio. Oh, that was '06. That was ten years yeah, later. Yeah. yeah. Yep, that okay. was '06. Ten years later. Okay. Um, Moving on, you, let's talk a little bit um, about Iowa. Uh, and Iowa has their media day on Saturday, August, is it 4th or 5th? I think it's 5th. Uh, and they began practice today, as we mentioned, to start this program. You have some, uh, some questions heading into things. So here are the – if I was covering Iowa media day like I used to back in the day for Sports Talk Radio in Des Moines, I'd be wanting to get – I'd be going there with five questions I want to get answers to. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you these five questions and, and, and get from you what I think are the answers as a Hawkeye fan you want to hear or hope to hear. Right. And then when, when we're sitting here next Sunday after we've been through media day, kind of compare what, we, what you discussed here with what was actually said. Okay. All right. All right. So, All right, so these aren't in any certain order. order. So I'll start so with an. Op- but number one's kind of obvious. obvious. Walk me through the process of the coach's son being a first-time play-calling offensive coordinator, being quote-unquote mentored by the head coach's former offensive coordinator, who happened to be there for most of his most successful seasons. Um, yeah, as the head coach at Iowa, what, what, how, what does what that, that process, process look like? Is he is, is he is mentoring, mentoring him? him? Is he babysitting him? him? Is Here's, he a second yeah. opinion? Is he an innocent, he an innocent bystander? bystander? Walk me through what that looks like when you got 25 seconds on a play clock and you got to make a call on a key third and four. What's that look like? Well, I think those conversations have been hashed out on Thursday, and I don't believe Ken O'Keefe's going to be in Brian's earpiece during a play call. I think that, as has been the case in the past, you have offensive coaches up in the booth. Greg Davis is up in the booth. I think Brian's going to be down in the field, so maybe Ken will be the eye in the sky, which I don't Mm -hmm. think is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that given the way Iowa football has been, given that Brian grew up in Iowa football, literally when he was a kid, when, when Hayden was the head coach, and then as a player back in the early 2000s, Brian was a part of you know that 04 Big Ten championship season. Was on the I think he was on the 02 roster as well as a very young player. 
and then, you know, having been a head coach, an assistant head coach these last five or six years as well, Ken was the offensive coordinator when he was a player there. My guess is their answer is just going to fall back on how great it has been in Iowa to have such continuity of personnel, stability within the coaching staff, the same head coach for 19 years. Ken O'Keefe will be in his 12th or 13th year now as an assistant coach and member of this program. A lot of that overlapping Brian's time. They get together as an offensive group during the course of the week, and they put together a game plan as a group. Kirk has always said that. And I think that you'll probably just hear a lot about that. You know, I, I respect Ken's influence on things. He definitely has contributions. Uh, I, I, I think that they're not going to give you the red meat that you're probably going to want to hear. Okay. okay. Question, Question two. two. Does the does quarterback, quarterback position, position look stronger, stronger than, it does, than it did in the did spring? In the spring. One, of the one of the things, you know, you know two things two I think we both agree on. on. In the Big, in the Big Ten, Ten, we have, we have as head, head coaches, coaches two of the two best, best positional gurus, gurus in the country. In the country. Harbaugh, Harbaugh at quarterback, Ferentz at offensive line. One of the things I've heard Harbaugh say as a Michigan fan 50 times since he took over, John, is the biggest time of improvement for a quarterback is actually in the summer because that's one position where you don't really require an entire team to come around you to get better, to develop timing, watch film, etc. You can take a huge leap there. So we just got through the summer. I think we all walked away from the spring watching the quarterback play, and our one-word analysis was, yikes. Okay, so... It, what are, are, are does that, does that position, position look stronger, stronger than in this after the after summer than it did in the spring? Answer will be given will be something along the lines of, well, we'll know here more in a few weeks. We've only had them for a week, but we like both of their attitudes. Uh, we we think both of them can win games for us. We we like their uh, what they're doing. They still have a lot to learn. Neither one of them started a game. But uh, we feel that we're better along than we were in the spring, but it's still very early. That's exactly what you're going to hear, which is a whole lot of nothing. And frankly, however, given how these early practices go and the fact that they can't have two-a-days, they're only going to be four or five practices in before media day. And a lot of those early practices, um, they're not conditioning because they've been conditioning. There's just not a ton of meat on the bone. They're not necessarily going to be installing the offense right out of the chute, especially when they go the first few days in shells. So I think that's the answer that you're going to get. Is there a weapon on the outside on offense that can keep defenses honest? Answer given? Sure hope so. I sure hope we find one or two of those along the way here. I think this is where Kirk, Kirk will self-deprecate. I think the, uh, the the new wide receiver position coach um, is going to, you know, a lot of people will be around him shoving microphones in his face. It'll be his first media day. They'll go down through all the lists. They'll talk about the, the big freshman coming in from the south. They'll talk about this, you know, grad transfer that's coming in from New Mexico who was a speed demon down in, in East St. Louis in high school and played for a triple option offense in Bob Davey, so he didn't get a lot of reps there, but that's a nice, mature body. But I think Kirk is basically going to sit there and say, yeah, we've got a, a, lot, a ton of work to do. And, uh, you know, we hope to de- we hope to get to that point to develop that. I doubt that he will pivot unasked necessarily to the uh, depth that they have at tight end, but he could p- potentially do that and talk about how they're going to work them more into the mix. If you saw Iowa's two-deep roster in their media guide, Iowa has 12 offensive player uh, positions listed, which really would be a good strategy for this year. Um, two tight ends. Two tight end sets listed amongst there as well. So I think you're going to see a lot of sexy with the tight ends. But I I think Kirk self-deprecates at that juncture. Were the pass pro problems of the last two years a weakness on the offensive line? Because as we talked about just a couple of weeks ago, it is rare for an offensive line to struggle in pass blocking but dominate in run blocking. Usually it's the other way around. Okay. So were the pass pro problems of the last two years a weakness of the offensive line, emblematic of C.J. Beathard's lack of mobility slash pocket presence after he got banged up, 
Do we know the answer to that? Because I think that goes, goes a long way in answering que the question I asked two questions ago about the quarterback position. Well, I, I hope all these questions get asked because I would really love to juxtapose what Kirk's answers are going to be to what I'm doing playing Kirk Ferentz. Because what I think he would do right away if this question were asked would say, we've never had a, another football player in this program as tough as C.J. Beathard, which doesn't answer your question at all. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then say, you know, we he did what we asked him to do. And, you know, yeah, it's unfortunate that he got hurt, which it limited. And I know that last year they really tried to put him in a jar and asked him not to run as much. And I don't know that he could have because of how he was playing. So I think that he'll basically talk about C.J. Beathard's toughness. Uh, and then talk about you know the offensive line, the experience they have coming back. So he will not answer that question directly because that would be admitting problems. I don't know. I used to get him to answer some questions, honestly. Like that time I asked him the year you guys had you lost your whole defensive line, but had Chad Greenway and Abdul Hodge coming back. Two thousand five. He was only six. Yeah, he was only six years into it then. He's a lot older now. So he was, he was naive. Yes. Because on the cricket, I asked him, "Would you rather have your entire defensive line back and all new linebackers, or all new line, or uh, your or uh, your linebackers back and an all new defensive line?" He said, "Well, Steve, since we lost our entire defensive line and brought back your linebackers, I guess that's the answer I got to give. Right yeah. on the money. That's right. Yeah. Um, final question: Who's going to be that one disruptive guy? And sometimes you have more than one, you know. But that Jaleel Johnson, that Adrian Claiborne, Mitch Keene. Who's that one disruptive guy on the defensive front Iowa always seems to have? Because that's a key, even though you blitz more or at least have you more of your Raider exotic packages under Phil Parker than you did Norm, that is still your base defense. So who's that one guy that can disrupt the line of scrimmage on the defensive front? I would think he would give you a two-part answer. One is they're going to have to do it with their front seven. Um, when you got a guy like Pat Anger playing – or not Pat. See, I do that all the time with Josie Jewell. I say Pat Anger because he wears the same damn number and plays like it. Um, when you got a guy like Josie Jewell with the experience that he has um, and his ability to track down runners and to give you pressure, he becomes an extension of your defensive line. Um, we're going to be young in the middle, so we're going to need help from the guys behind those guys inside. Um, but then also, I think he'll transition into thinking that Parker Hesse is poised to have, uh, you know, a solid year being a senior. And then he'll wax poetically and transition into, typically, if we're going to be at our best, we're going to have to have 50 or seniors who are playing their best football when they're seniors, that he gives that pat answer all the time. So, because I also think this is another position that you're asking specifically about, that is a that is a question mark extraordinaire that they don't have really any answers to. I mean, they've got Nathan Budgeta, but he was a you know a, he was a, a throw in a throw in prize with Jaleel Johnson. That I'm, I'm I'm sorry, that's probably insulting to Budgeta, but he's nowhere near Jaleel Johnson's level, and he also didn't get anywhere near the attention because of what Jaleel Johnson demanded due to his skill set and abilities. So Budgeta and anybody who played alongside Jaleel Johnson probably had a little easier sledding than they're going to have this year without mm -hmm. Jaleel Johnson. Now, one answer I know Kirk will not give, and I know he'll be asked about it, and he will certainly soft-shoe this one, is I just – I felt all along – I feel like I'm the lone guy out there, just kind of like I was the lone guy out there saying I never thought A.J. Derby would play – quarterback for Iowa and he'd be a great linebacker or tight end and like I said I don't think that Drew Cook's going to play quarterback for Iowa and I think he's going to be a tight end and both of those things you know Derby didn't stick around but that's the direction he was heading and now Cook is a tight end I think A.J. Epines is going to be a defensive lineman for Iowa his first at least this year I think that's where he's going to see his stamp. He's six feet five, two hundred and eighty-five pounds as a true freshman, and he's built like a brick. You know what house, as my old man used to say. I mean, this team needs help on the inside. They have experience and more bodies on the outside. Epinesa is an athletic specimen, and if you remember Christian Ballard early in his career, 
and then Jonathan Bobineau. Both of those players might have been better at Iowa on the outside. but And also Matt Roth in 2002 against Michigan State. I'll never forget that game. They, they lined Matt Roth inside at defensive tackle on a number of snaps because they saw an exploit in Michigan State's left guard that he was slow. And Roth absolutely ate them up that day. I think that's what you're going to see Iowa do with Epinesa to start with. He's going to get 20, 25 snaps a game, and I think they're going to mostly come from the inside where Iowa has needs. And I'm not saying he's going to be that disruptive guy. I'm more just saying to reiterate what I've felt all along with AJ is he, he might outgrow the defensive end position at Iowa. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's just such a freak. I'm not used to seeing someone with his attributes play defensive end for Iowa. And because of that, I think he's going to be a defensive lineman and a really good one. So I don't know that Kirk's going to be able to give you that uh, disruptive guy answer either, or he will. Well, hearing you talk about Vanessa reminds me of the difference between a reload program and a, a developmental one is the ability to plug and play new guys to replace the old guys because the new guys physically have the measurables. They come on campus or, um, you know, one year of conditioning and they become the specimens you're describing of an Epinesa. And one of the things I heard Kirk say this week to Rick Neuheisel uh, during Big Ten Media Days is that, you know, he, he was asked to define what's a developmental program. And he said, basically, our job at Iowa is we don't get the four- and five-star guys other schools get. So our job is to is to make those guys look like four- and five-star guys by the time they leave here. And I thought that was an excellent definition of a developmental program. And when you are beginning, though, with the frame and measurables of a guy like Epinesa, that gives you an opportunity to take a leap forward in what that development looks like. So... What did you think about the questions I came up with? Do you think those were good ones? Those are those are really good ones. And they're intended to try to get some specific answers in respectful ways on absolute questions that this program has facing this year. It's just that Kirk is so adept at not giving you meat to anything. And, and that's not a criticism of him. Uh, I would probably be the same way, especially after 19 damn years of these you know because you've you've got media day coming up next on saturday you had media days in chicago um you know less than two weeks before that and you've only had four days of practice in the meantime and you haven't had two a days so the, the, you're going to get a lot of the same questions you know as well as i do that iowa football media day they they extend a lot of invitations to small papers all around the state which i think is a mm-hmm. great thing so you mm-hmm. have a lot of guys that are going to be there asking the same questions that the the beat writers asked in chicago the guys that could get credentials for chicago because some of these you know small town paper guys wouldn't get credentials for the uh, big 10 media day event so it really isn't it really isn't a meat and taters type of event. It's it's a photo op. It's to me. It's really that a lot of your photogs get an opportunity to load up on shots that they can use in early season stories before some of these kids have game film action. It's a lot of feature based stuff that papers are going to fill their space with over the course of the three weeks that follow prior to the first game week press conferences. There really is that. There's rarely any news or many things that are noteworthy that come out of something like this. That's always been the case, in my opinion. I think it will be again. So I don't expect anything different. Can't blame a, can't blame a fella for trying. No, I thought you did a good job. I, I, want, to, you know, I want to know the answer to that, too. I mean, I, I'm, really, I'm really interested in watching how Brian Ferentz calls a game. Because as, as easy as some of you, including the guy I'm talking to, out there think it is to call plays because you've done so well in your uh, PS3 or Xbox Dynasty mode through the years, that's got to be one of the harder things to do, to get into a rhythm of calling plays with the play clock and things of that nature and thinking ahead to the next play, the next two to three play options, depending on two to three different outcomes of the play that you just called. In my opinion, I, I, I think that's... I think that would be very hard. And these guys get paid well to do it. And Brian Ferentz has not called a play, as far as I know, 
unless he did sneak into uh, the booth during the Indiana game back in 2014 or 15, whenever that was. I don't believe he's coordinated at any level, called to play at any level. Now he's learned from some great guys. Um, oh, gosh, why can't I think of the, the Houston, Texas coach's name uh, that was at Penn State? O'Brien? Bill O'Brien. Bill O'Brien. was. I mean, you, know, you talk about his exposure to Bill Belichick. It was more his regular exposure in the coach's room office meetings exposure with Bill O'Brien. Uh, Bill O'Brien and Brian Ferentz formed a very good relationship, and Bill O'Brien tried to get him to come down and be one of his uh, coaches with the Houston Texans a few years ago. And I think that that exposure is going to really wear well. So if I was going to look for an early career tell, I would look for a blend between the Ken O'Keefe offense at Iowa, which is really the offense that Kirk Ferentz wanted at Iowa, and what Bill O'Brien did at Penn State. And I I do believe that it's more than just a hunch that we're going to see a lot more creative utilization of tight ends, a position where Iowa this year is incredibly deep and looks to be incredibly deep for the foreseeable future, not just with the, the Peter Picar types, the guys that are great blockers and can, you know, catch a six yard out, but move tight ends. You know, some true H backs or some guys that can flex out. You know, TJ Hawkinson was listed at number one at one of the tight ends listed on the depth chart. Peter Picar was your starting tight end last year. He's been jumped now by Noah Font and um, TJ Hawkinson. Both of those guys are move tight ends. Both of those guys have excellent ball skills as it relates to receiving abilities. Very good hip movement to where they can go running out and then get up field. So I think that you're going to see some creativity with the tight ends that you saw from Bill O'Brien at Penn State. And Iowa certainly utilized their tight ends well during the uh, Ken O'Keefe offensive coordination era. I think you'll see Iowa attack the middle of the field more than they did with Greg Davis, which seemed to be anathema to him. And therefore, (laughs) Iowa's offense was even easier to defend and even more compressed. So those are things I think we're going to see some familiar things, but new twists. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Well, you know I'm all about attacking the middle of the field. I sit here on a lot of college football Saturdays screaming at my television sets. Throw the, I've done this for years now. You've heard me do it. Throw the ball in the middle of the field. Uh, too many college offenses only ask defenses in the passing game to essentially defend the hash marks out out of fear of turnovers and everything else. And... Um, I, think I think it creates, it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. You put yourself in your own phone, phone booth as opposed to making the defense defend the field. Um, and I'm all for attacking the middle of the field. I, I think there's not enough of that done in today's college football. My, my last comment, and it, it's to that point, you remember our old friend Norm Parker. And both of us sure, had, sure. Oppor- had opportunities to sit down, break bread with him, and just be regaled with some just awesome awesome football conversations and sometimes um, some pretty high level football acumen that he would drop on us mm-hmm. and I I recall on two separate occasions one time when I was emceeing an event that Norm was speaking at and one time when I was having dinner with him at an iClub event asking him about his defensive philosophy asking him about that zone and asking him and I think this was you know right after you know, Austin Arnaud's career was over at Iowa State, and Iowa just terrorized him with interceptions over that middle of the field. And Norm says that he sets up his philosophy from the inside out and multiple levels because he does he didn't believe that there were but ten percent of Division One quarterbacks who could successfully and repeatedly make the throw over the linebackers and in front of the safeties in the middle of the field on a regular basis to move the ball down the field, eight, nine, ten play drives, and put up 25 or more points against his strategy. And he was right when you look at his track record. And I do think that a lot of quarterbacks struggle with that. So I do think I was going to throw more in the middle only because I don't think they can possibly throw less in the middle than they have. But I'm not saying they're going to be raining balls between the hash marks 
because that is the area of risk. And what does Iowa have going into this season? They'll have a starting quarterback who's never started a game before in his college career. So I don't think Iowa will get crazy, but I do think you can do some quick slants and drags, like what Iowa did against uh, Nebraska with Riley McCarron when they you know ha- play off their run motion. And if the linebackers are really biting and the safeties are really biting, crashing down that run motion, you leak your slot back across the middle on a quick slant and he's gone 80 yards. Those are the kind of things I think we'll see. But I'm not saying they're going to live between the hash marks. Okay. Okay. We'll see. I'm going to be fascinated. My final point this week is week is I I, I will be fascinated fascinated to see how Brian Ferentz utilizes Ken O'Keefe as a resource once the season gets underway. I think that's going to go a long way in determining what his success level is in year one because you have a tremendous resource there that on one hand um, you don't want to create as a crutch because it's your job and you need to make it your job. On the other hand, you would be foolish not to, not to consult the mounds of experience um, that he brings to the table uh, coaching, coaching alongside, alongside your old man, man and winning a lot of football, football games, games at the same time. time. And so, so I think I negotiating, negotiating when, when to use that resource, that um, um, I, I think that's going to go a long way in determining the level of success Brian Ferentz has in year one. Yeah, I hope that Brian utilizes the resources he has. I, I No question about it. Brian is someone who does not lack confidence. And that is great. A lot of successful coaches have that edge and ego to them. I just hope it's not too big to the point where he basically says, I got this now, guys. Thanks for the help. This is my car. I doubt that he will. I think that he will utilize Ken. I also think that Ken is a, is a professional and a seasoned pro and has been in instances similar to this to where Ken O'Keefe used to be Kirk Ferentz's boss when they were... Good point. They, That's a good point. They, You're right. Before Forgot they got to it. Iowa. And then Kirk yeah. was Ken's boss, and they worked that out well. Ken O'Keefe used to be the offensive coordinator when Brian Ferentz was a player. And now Brian Ferentz is, I guess you'd say, uh, although Ken is not Brian's subordinate, in many ways he is. In the, in the you know flow chart of the organizational chart of offensive coordinator is second only to the head coach. So I think that I think that they've done this before and I think they'll be able to navigate those waters. Good point. You make a good point. Listen, that's always the best way to end this podcast. For Steve, I'm John. We'll talk to you next week.